What's really going on in the heads and hearts of the humans around you? I'm Mads Grummet, journalist, entrepreneur and startup investor. And I'm Sabina Reid, psychologist, speaker and media commentator. And this is Human Cogs, a podcast about the universal experiences that really matter and the candid conversations we need to have to share them. If you like Human Cogs, we'd love you to hit subscribe and please leave us a star rating. That way we can keep bringing you more stories from Extraordinary Ordinaries to help us all do human well. If your heart had a voice, have you ever wondered what it would say? Dr. Michelle Woolhouse is an author, podcaster and holistic and integrative GP with decades of experience working in the fields of anxiety, stress and burnout. We first spoke to Michelle in 2020 on Human Cogs, around the time she hit a wall within herself, which catalyzed her own decision to step off the high-stress career treadmill she'd been on and to embark on a deep journey of self-discovery. This was a challenging and fascinating conversation which explores what happened when Michelle pushed pause on her life and let her heart lead the way. Trusting her intuition and challenging some of her traditional medical training, Michelle got out of her head and into the wholeness of her body. Now, she's also recently released a great book called The Wonder Within, and in it, Michelle explores society's normalisation of stress, unpacks the interconnections of health and healing, and provides a playbook to give us all the skills, knowledge and inspiration we need to uncover our full selves in order to feel wholly alive. Here's our chat with Dr. Michelle Woolhouse. Dr. Michelle, thank you for joining us again on Human Cogs. We're very excited to turn the page on the next chapter of what you've been up to since we talked in 2020. I wanted to start with reading a little bit from your recently published book, In the book, you say, I have suffered from anxiety, stress and burnout. Despite having the knowledge of mind-body medicine, life got in my way and I got in life's way. What did you mean then? (laughs) Uh, Well, anxiety and stress and burnout are the greatest teachers or have been the greatest teachers in my life. And in many ways, I guess I've chosen them to be my teachers And anxiety started probably really early. Um, I write in the book also that this was a, I guess I I knew it in hindsight that when I was about nine years of age, I I started developing anxiety around this kind of, I went to a Catholic primary school and the the priest was talking about um, God being all knowing and all powerful and all seeing. And if that's not enough to scare the pants off any primary school age child, I'm not sure what is. But so I was like, wow, gosh, that's pretty full on. And then we, the next week or two weeks later, we learned about the Ten Commandments. And the worst thing that you could do was take the Lord's name in vain. And I was like, my God, that's full on. Jesus. (laughs) (laughs) My God. My God. (laughs) And so anyway, my nine-year-old brain just started silently taking the Lord's name in vain and I couldn't stop it. Lo and behold, I just, you know, developed, you know, really, I became really anxious because I thought I was going to hell and, of course, I didn't want to tell anyone because I was, I was assured that they would, you know, confirm my worst fears and, um, and that actually took 
months and months, you know, to get over. Um, I'm not sure how it got over. Maybe life just kind of, you know, carried on and, and I started to let it go. But it wasn't until I was in medical school that the anxiety really took off. I mean, there was multiple different reasons for that. And I think lots of medical students would attest to the fact that it is just probably one of the worst ways to get a, a qualification. I mean, it's just, it's it's really quite cruel, you know, to be honest, like long hours and they ask you questions until you're wrong. You know, they never celebrated mm. for being right. You know, it's like, okay, well, if you got that one right, let's ask you another one. And we'll, well, it's ask an exponential one. learning curve, isn't Correct. it? Correct. And is it's there, tough. It's really tough. Do you and think there's a correlation between, I'm married to someone who also went through med school and has stayed in the profession and Shout out to you, Jez. Love you dearly. Um, but do you think there's a correlation between people who go into that high pressure, high ask environment and, and a sort of A-type personality, let's say? 100%. I mean, we fit into the system, right? Like, I mean, you know, we, we tend to sort of do well at school and, you know, you're clever enough to sort of, you know, tick the boxes in maths and chemistry and whatever else you sort of choose to do. So you sort of suit the system. And there's probably an anxiety profile then in that particular type of person, would, would you say? I'm not sure whether it's an anxiety profile because I think some people actually deal with that really well. And I think yeah. it depends whether you internalise or you externalise yeah. your, your issues. And I think women, you know, not to generalise, but there is a tendency for, for women to internalise, you know, how they feel and, you know, to blame themselves and to, uh, I guess, to... To self-blame and then keep trying to improve themselves, you know, okay, so if I'm failing on the outside, I'm going to improve myself on the inside until I get it right and hence the recipe for burnout, I guess. Yeah, so anxiety, you know, back to the original question um, about life getting in the way or I got in life's way, I think there's often a duality to our lives, you know. We have, there's a rhythm to life and I was kind of swimming against the tide, you know, I was excessively working and I was overburdened and I got in the way of the responsibilities that I had to live according to life's principles and natural principles, really, even though I was trying my best. You know, I was sleeping, you know, according to my circadian rhythms and visiting nature all the time. I was simply doing too much. And that's the recipe, I think, for, for stress and burnout. And so, yeah, I can add it to the list. Tick. <laughs> and, and what does that look like now for you, Michelle? Yeah, it's a it's a great question. I mean, I've I've literally turned my life around in the last two years. I was at that time running a general practice and running a business and doing a whole raft of different other things. And I just decided that I wanted to change and I wanted to sell and I wanted to do something different. And I think, you know, change is as good as a holiday. And so I changed everything. <laughs> That's a big holiday. What did you change? In selling the business, I, I took six to nine months off and I wrote the book that we're you know discussing in which was a real passion project of mine but also it was a long time coming and I think my heart changed in many ways like when I started to when I started the business I was absolutely 100% the driver of that train like I wanted it really so much I was so engaged and I was so passionate and then I think it got, got to a stage where I think I changed and life changed and my direction just had to change. And so I was like, a, you know, a square peg in a round hole, essentially. And it wasn't anything that I did wrong. Yes, I was overburdened. And yes, you know, there was a lot of work to do. And yes, I had a family and a, and a relationship to uphold and all of the regular life things. But I think I changed inherently. And so I was really, it, life was wanting me to take a different direction. And so I had to get out and 
make a new start. And I think that was the most fascinating part of um, which I, I wax and weave through the book in a way because I think sometimes you have to roll with the punches, you know. Sometimes it doesn't, life doesn't work out the way you originally planned and that agitation and that stress and that pain that comes from that, sometimes that's what it is. It's not your fault. It's nothing you did necessarily. I mean, of course, we're all responsible for those choices, but sometimes you go, wow, that didn't work out and I'm going to have to take a different direction. Yeah, I mean, when I hear you talking, it sounds like you're saying a lot of us have a vision, a picture, a dream, an expectation of what we think the future looks like or what we look like in our future. Mm. And it's the rigidity holding on to that picture or that dream that cannot serve us well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think rigidity is, is such a fantastic you know, topic to talk about because I mean, I'll often t- teach my patients about rigidity, about that wanting everything to stay the same. And the opposite of rigidity is chaos. And chaos is much more visible. <laughs> you know, it's like it's this, um, it's anxiety, it's flabbergasting, it's, you know, disorganisation, <laughs> it's it's all of those kind of things, whereas rigidity is is almost revered. Like we mm. look at people that are rigid and go, wow, she's got her stuff. Well, it looks like control. It looks like control. It looks like control. Is adaptability in the middle place then or, uh, you know, the ability to – isn't sort of emotional intelligence this idea that you can flex and move and become adaptable, yeah. you know, to, to relationships, yep. to environment, et cetera? So is that the gold state, the gold I, standard? I actually think it is. I mean, you can call it adaptability, flexibility, flow. And what I love about that and what what I've written about in the book is that I think adaptability is actually the cornerstone of human health. And so our nervous systems adapt, our heart adapts, you know, our digestive system adapts within hours, minutes, seconds to whatever is in our environment. And one of the beautiful things about the cardiovascular system, so the heart, is that um, it's probably the most adaptable system that we have. And every second or, you know, microseconds, it's looking at the environment for cues in which to how to respond. And we can measure this through looking at heart rate variability, which is a really simple test where, you know, it's literally like a little probe on the finger. And you look at your heart rate variability and you can see how adaptable the system is. Now, originally, like 50 years ago, we used to think heart rate variability, like you'd wanted a low heart rate variability, keeping it nice and steady. And really, they realised that a high heart rate variability is the essence of adaptability. And so that's what we want, is we want to be as adaptable as we can. We want to be able to twist and turn as the environment allows us to. So we can respond to our environment optimally. Optimally, the yeah. The flip side of that, though, is fight-flight kind of where you'd see a variability that would skew you yes. know, to really high anxiety, for example, and right. outsides, you know, panic so, heart yeah, rate. Yeah, so again, so we can measure the energetics of the heart outside the body. So it goes out about 10 foot um, and you use a, a machine called a magnetometer. But they think that they could actually measure it further out ex- our machinery and technology. As in like a force field around you yeah. of your heart. So it's an electromagnetic field that surrounds the heart and it's 5,000 times stronger than the brain is. And so we have an energetic expansion of our brain, which we can feel and we can adapt to and sense between another person. But the heart's electromagnetic field is actually 5,000 times greater. And that's super exciting. So when we walk into a room, for example, and someone's 
either angry or laughing or full of joy, we will instantly adopt that energy of the room. I mean, you know what that's like. You know, you mm. walk in, you're like, oh my goodness, what has gone on yeah. here? Or, yeah. or vice versa, you start laughing to a joke which you have no idea what the punchline was. And so we can tune in to that electromagnetic radiation. And so when you're in fight or flight, that electromagnetic radiation is less coherent. It's jagged and confused and mm. agitated, and we can sense that. And so there's ways in which we can attune our heart into our lives and there becomes much more of a coherence to it. So well, in, a sense in the book, of resonance. You talk about this heart-brain communication mm. patterns. Explain that. So the heart is probably one of the most fascinating uh, parts of the body. So it embryologically is fully formed and fully functioning when the embryo is four weeks old. Now, that's extraordinary. I mean, that's the size of a pinhead or something to that kind of, you know, size. And it's not until eight to 12 weeks that the first neuron from the brain or the spinal cord is made. So the heart is autonomous. It's the most autonomous organ that we have. And in Chinese medicine or even the ancient um, systems, so Chinese medicine is a whole system of medicine, uh, and they talk about the heart as being the governor of the body. And in fact, they rarely mention the brain, which is really fascinating. So when I was in Vietnam and I was learning traditional Vietnamese medicine, which is very similar to Chinese medicine, I've asked that about 100 times. Um, so essentially it's the same sort of system, but it's a Vietnamese kind of version. And I remember being eight weeks or 12 weeks into this course that I was doing, thinking they haven't mentioned the brain once. And in fact, when you look at it, the brain is seen in these whole systems medicine to be the computer that we use to input the data and we can change it. And modern day science is telling us that that's absolutely 100% correct. We now all seem to know about brain plasticity for good or for bad and that we adapt and our brain and our computer system will adapt to the input of what the body gives it. The reason why they call it the governor is that that everything goes through the essence of the heart space. And so there's this beautiful thing, a two-way connection between the heart and the brain. When the brain tells the heart what to do, it can actually decide whether it will do it or not. So meaning that there is a essence that can be overridden through the heart, but when the heart tells the brain what to do, it has to do what the heart says. So this is then the autonomy mm. of, of the heart itself, yeah. not a responsive system. It's almost got Correct. agency. That's right. And so it's something that you might say might put the heart rate up. In fact, in a different circumstance, might actually decrease the heart rate to protect the body. So it's just got a nuance to it that I, I think misses we miss in our sort of daily lives. Mm. And the reason why I wanted to teach people about that is that it's such an important part of coming out of the patterns of anxiety and stress and burnout because the heart has this way to guide us through our lives. And I think we all kind of intuitively know that, you know, it's like follow your heart and we mm. get these, we get told, you know, to to listen, you know, to that deepest part of ourselves. And I think intuitively we kind of know what that means, but then we often override that between the logical and the other aspects of our lives and so the heart tends to get overridden quite easily. 
You speak a little bit about, or a lot, about intuition and and gut as well, gut feelings in the body. I wanted to share this quote and explore deeper some of what you mean here. The more we are tuned into the body, the more we can learn to trust it. When we are practised in only using rationality in our lived experience, we can be very materially and linearly successful, but not necessarily in tune with our heart's desires. This can lead to a pervasive feeling of discontent. Talk to us about what you're referring to here. I think one of the greatest lessons I learned personally over the last couple of years was that I was overusing my intellect. And I think that it is a safe place to hide, you know, um, kind of going back to how we introduced you know, um, medical school is it's it's a linear process. It's a metric process. I've fitted into that system. I could tick boxes. Um, I could I could play the game. You're rewarded. That. You're also rewarded. I was absolutely externally rewarded yeah. for sure. And that that feels good. I mean, you know, everybody loves a reward. And I'm, my dopamine levels are probably going sky high, and that's fantastic. And um, and it feels good for sure. But the combination of, of overusing my intellect meant that I, I kept wanting to think my way out of a out of a problem and using the same thinking that got me into the same problem. You know, we all know that beautiful quote, which I think is one of the most profound things for all of us, you know, overachievers and strivers, is to, I had to get my head out of my own way and I had to learn how to actually stop and get out of the you know, the external gratification that I was attuned to and sit with my heart, Mm. you know, sit with my soul and sit with myself because I just couldn't find joy. Like I was externally rewarded and I was tick boxed and sure I had fleeting moments of joy and I had good times and, and aspects like that, but I was, my heart was crying so this and is I couldn't not just, explain why, you know. You're not just referring to your to your work and the trajectory of your career. Oh, in the main, but I think it's more life itself, yeah. I think. I mean, sure, I mean, there was lots of aspects of my career that was fantastic and I still love serving people and, and playing the role that I play, but it was too much and I was crumbling and I was really burnt out. Like, I was really irritated. I'd lost my empathy I really had lost my heart and I really had to kind of cl- shut it down and recover. <laughs> Did it play out in other domains of your life? I guess that's what I'm wanting to explore, that if you're a partner and a parent and a friend and a daughter and all the roles that we have, then if a lot of your life feels joyless or if your career work, if your work feels mm. joyless, it, it must spill over into... Yeah, it did. Know. Yeah, for sure it did. I think it, it particularly uh, spilt over into motherhood mm. and I think I found it really difficult, you know, to mother like it with a full heart because I was just exhausted, you know. I'd sort of had no, yeah, I had no reserve. I think mm. that's the thing with burnout. You have no reserve. You're sort of at 105% and the bucket's overflowing and then to try and give over that flexibility and freedom that, that is required of sort of motherhood and caring. Like if, you know, somebody got a cold, that was too much mm. to, to cope with. It was like, oh, my God, I don't have time for a cold. Because <laughs> it's true. It I have a, I have a did, bucket. Did you have flowing. self 
compassion through that time when you were burnt out? And I thought that I had compassion and I kind of write about it in the book. Like, you know, what I had was self-care. Mm. So I was going to bed at the right time. I was going to yoga. I was walking in nature. And I think there was a moment in there, I had a, a very good mentor at the time that I would see often. What I actually realised was that I didn't have enough self-love and I didn't even know that I didn't have it. (laughs) I honestly, genuinely, like I had great self-esteem but I didn't have great self-worth. What I mean by that is that I was putting other people's needs ahead of my own and that was because I felt like I should. Like it was, I was, I was capable and um, it was important that I put it, put other people's needs ahead of my own and they needed me more than I needed me. And essentially um, that was the recipe that, that kind of led to just complete and utter (laughs) annihilation of my, of my former life, essentially. And self-compassion for me was a total game changer On the last podcast, we were talking about that in the sense of like, I felt like an absolute fraud as I started to begin, you know, some of the exercises that I had given to my patients, things like telling myself, you know, that I love myself. That's what we we talked about that in the mirror, put your hand on your heart. I remember this for for our listeners who haven't heard our first chat with Michelle, go back and listen because I think these two episodes complement each other well. And also show a vulnerability and a humanity between what you were talking about a couple of years ago and Mm. and where you're at now and the journey you're on, which is normalising for all of us, I think, that you said, put your hand on your heart, tell yourself that you love yourself. We talked about the work of Kristen Neff, who's Mm. well known in the um, self-compassion space. And I remember very vividly you saying that we cannot have empathy without self-compassion. Yeah. So you were exploring that a couple of years ago but not enough. Yes, exactly. And I'd lost my compassion. Yeah. I mean, I'd lost my empathy. Yes. You know, and, and so I think that that's just, it was is exactly sort of the recipe is like I had the self-esteem and I had the external validation and I had the rewards. But without the self-compassion, without actually putting myself into the soup, I, I just, I did too much. I went too far. Mm-hmm. You know, I crossed over the ground too fast and I needed to stop and life stopped me. What do you mean by that? You've made that reference to Mm. life a lot now. How did life speak to you with its breaks? (laughs) Yeah, well, I guess I had no other... I felt like I had no other choice. But what does that mean? Because some people, they have a a severe health crisis, so Mm. they end up hospitalised or a near-death experience or a relationship breaks down. What what happened that, that you said no more? So nothing happened specifically like that, except I had an impending sense that I would get sick. Mm. And because I was a doctor and I spent so much time with sick people and I'd heard people's stories before, I probably did have the privilege of being maybe six months to 12 months ahead of ahead of other people's stories because I'd heard it. I'd heard it in my friends. I'd heard it in, in um, my patients. I mean time and time and time again. Mm. And I knew... Somewhere in me, I was like, I wonder what it will be if I don't So because stop. you're on the path to burnout, you just thought you're on this runaway train yeah. and, and you had to get off it yeah. to, to stop yourself. Yeah. One of the things 
in listening to you that I'm wondering about is, you know, you, you came to this realisation, you thought, okay, I need to save myself from myself. Mm. What were some of the steps that you took if someone's listening to this and thinking, you know what, I reckon I'm on the cusp of burnout or I'm not living the life I want to be living? What did you do mm. yeah, practically to, to try and help yourself? It's a great question. And I think it's actually much more intangible than than practical mm. because I was doing a lot of the practical things that you probably get your, you know, your 10, good steps, on paper. To, 10 yeah. steps to sort of instant burnout cure, which, you know, might be, you know, time in nature and, you know, using the breath and going to sleep and eating well and reducing alcohol and caffeine, et cetera. But what I actually needed, one of the biggest things that I needed to actually tap into is trust, and it was the trust of my intuition. So we spoke a little bit about my intuition that I was, you know, I had a sense of foreboding, I had a sense Mm. of of doom that was impending, and I really needed to trust the journey. And so it was. it's really difficult making very good decisions when you're in burnout, and I think the people that might be listening to this that are in burnout are like, yes, I know. Well, how do I make these decisions to stop burnout when I'm actually in burnout? Because you do get entrenched in your life and you get stuck in financial situations and and, um, work situations. And so what I did was when I did walk and when I walked in nature, I would actually take space a little bit differently in my body. So sometimes when you walk in nature, you just go for a walk and it's beautiful and it's pleasant and it's lovely and it makes you feel great and that's fantastic. I would actually walk alongside myself, like I would carry myself on the walk and I would witness myself and I would try and tune into my body as much as I could. So I would spend a lot of time kind of focusing on my heart space and kind of promising my heart that I would listen, you know, because the beautiful thing about the heart is it doesn't speak in words. It speaks in kind of senses. So I had to make room in my life to allow my heart to speak so that I could actually allow the heart to help me make these major decisions, which I knew that I had to make. And again, with some of the practices of self-compassion, as they started to become more familiar, that familiarity is the sign that the plasticity is changing, you know. So it's like, okay, when things are unfamiliar for us, it's the brain's plasticity going, hello, this is a bit weird, this is strange, this is clunky. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. clunky. It's, it's, it doesn't feel great. And so then the intellect can come in and go, well, if it doesn't feel great, then don't do it. (laughs) You know, it should feel really easy. It should feel fantastic. I knew enough, I think, of the process to understand that I just had to keep going. And so walking alongside myself, watching myself with trust and patience was another thing. Mm -hmm. Like I had to be patient to let life show me the way. And I can tell you through that time I had multiple different conversations of fear-driven, what if, what if it doesn't work, what if I sell the business and nothing else happens and just I could feel the congestion of the fear in my body and then something would come which would be trust or patience or some of those essence that we learn about the heart. You know, in many ways it's, I mean, there's, there's so many spiritual books that would sort of talk about that. But living it is actually really critical because you have to live it in your own way. Mm. Like, so what I did might be different to what you would do or Mads would do or mm. whatever along the particular journey. And so I think it's the autonomy and the individual style that you have to actually trust in yourself to take yourself along the, the path. 
I wonder psychologically when I hear you talking about walking alongside yourself and being patient and trusting self, there's some reparenting mm. going on there. I, I, that's how I interpret yeah. it, that big Michelle is walking along little Michelle and, mm. and nine-year-old Michelle who was frightened and out of her wits for mm-hmm. using, I'm not Catholic, the Lord's name in vain, I think you said. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> um, that, so still do <laughs> but there's a part of you looking after you mm. maybe not always maybe not always big you looking after little you but that's very powerful picture because often we want or we hope or expect that someone else mm. will hold our little hand yeah or redirect our little self yes and the power lies within us mm. i love the term reparenting mm. and i think because it has this it, it, it gives a time span because I think, you know, when we're in those particular difficult situations, we want everything to be fixed. And when I would go walking, there was one time I was walking through, oh, it was like the back cliffs of, of Flinders and there's never anybody there. And there's this little part there where you can actually crawl down and no one can sit. Like you could be, you could live there basically Anyway, it's a little secret spot. But I'd been there about 20 years before and I'd had the most, I'd I'd had a real moment with myself. So I took myself back there and I remember um, as I was walking back up to my car, this little bird kept flying next to me on the poles and I was like, oh my God, can you just tell me what to do? (laughs) Tell me what to do. And I just wanted this bird to kind of write this, you know, like, it's like Mary Poppins, I guess. get the little seeds on the ground and say go this way you know with the arrow and I was like oh my god I don't know what to do and uh I mean you know I was trying with my brain all the time to figure out the answer figure it out with my brain figure it out with my brain and my brain wasn't coming to the party so I had to figure it out with my heart and I just had to trust and I sometimes it was just like a no or a yes and that was a, that was all I kind of got no Yes. Is intuition the same thing that we're talking about? Because I pe- think people so. often say, I mean, if I had a dollar for every time I heard someone say, I knew at the time mm. that there were red flags, mm. or I knew or at the time something didn't feel my right. My hair stood up. Oh, yes, they'll or give I a just, physiological yeah, response. Which is, which is real, right? Because yes. there's some primitive things yes. around. That's Absolutely. not your brain, or no. it's not conscious no. brain at least. That's intuition saying, yeah. actually, there is a fear response or a mm. sixth sense that occurs. That's right. But we don't. We, we actually don't. We, ta- we override, override the six senses. There's yeah. not enough space for us to notice them in the moment because we're so, well, like we're just heads on poles really yeah. aren't we, a lot of the time, just living in our heads and not in our bodies. Absolutely. And I think when you, you were saying that, I mean, one way that I would actually describe it and what I wanted, to, what I hope to get out of the book is, is I think intuition is when we, when we are using the wholeness of us, you know, so it's not, not the brain, it's not, not, you know, it's not the gut, it's not just the heart, it's the whole being of us. And in America, they've got a, a project called the Connect Dome Project, which is actually testing out when the body is in, I guess, its most finest connection. And that, they think, is the essence of optimal health and potentially longevity. And so in many ways, us, you know, us Westerners, we like to break it down. We've got the heart, we've got the lungs, we've got the brain, we've got the body, we've got, you know, the gut. We're, we're just born into an education system that reduces everything down to certain parts. 
Yet one of the things that we fail to do is build it back up and have a sense of whole. And whole is whole is whole is whole is whole. You know, it's like that's what it is. It's the whole system that we we want to kind of gel with. So as much as I'm sort of talking about the heart versus the brain, in many ways it's about trying to get the whole of me to come into the different part of my being. Mm. And that's what I wanted for the rest of, you know, that's what I wanted to be for the next part of my life is rather than just using the externalised, you know. The, the thinking you. The thinking and the, me mm. and, the, and the good girl me and the girl that went and did all these little tasks mm. and to actually move into a different part of, of living. The, in the book you've got a quote from Jane Goodall, mm. who of course famously did all the work um, with uh, bonobo uh, monkeys or gorillas, um, and she says, only when head and heart work in harmony can we attain our true human potential. What work did she do to understand this sense of wholeness and head and heart? Well, I think it's the work of ecology, of understanding that we are just a part of this incredible world. I mean, I think, I mean, the, the beautiful thing about Jane Goodall is she is full of wonder and awe. And you, when you ever you hear her speak, whether it's a YouTube video or live or whatever, I mean, you, you know that this woman gets it. I mean, she gets it so much. And I think loads of people get it by just looking at nature. I mean, Einstein's got a famous quote saying, just look deep into nature and then you'll understand everything better. And Jane Goodall spent her life, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, you know, studying nature. And about three years ago, before I made any decisions, I went um, to my favourite place in the world, which is Wilson's Promontory, and I went walking with, um, with a dear friend of mine and... She is um, a very wise woman. And we sat at the edge of the prom right down on the southern tip and we sat in the forest for four hours without speaking. And she said, I just want you to watch life's intelligence. Oh, my goodness, it's an interesting thing to do. I tell you, like, you know, it beats going to Chadston, I can tell you. And... um, (laughs) But just watching, you know, life do its thing. Mm. You know, there was animals and insects and lizards and trees and berries. And I mean, it was going on without any input from her or I. Mm-hmm. And, it and was it's wholly immersive as well, I suppose, that. And absolutely. perhaps where Jane Goodall and others, you say you dwarf yourself. Mm. You cease to become mm. an important thinking head in the presence of the magnitude mm. of, of nature itself. That's right. And the wisdom of animals. I think that was, that's, that's yeah. when I think of Jane, I think that mm. she surrendered the mm. human knowing to the animal wisdom. And the human arrogance, I think. And the think. human arrogance. That yeah. would be a better way to put it, yeah. the human arrogance. Yeah. That we have so much to learn from them and to immerse yourself yeah. with animals. And they know so much. Yeah. You know, we go walking and the birds know, you know, it's about to rain. Mm. Ten minutes before it's about to rain and... So are you working, where are you now? <laughs> are you working as a, well, tell us about your, your current work. Yeah, so I'm, I'm taking this from Mads. I have a portfolio career. Yes. <laughs> Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Um, no, so I do a couple of different things. I have a podcast of my own where I'm a co-host for a brand called FX Medicine, which is on a lot of 
integrative medicine topics. Um, I've written the book and the plan is to, I guess, embellish the book with further online opportunities. And I also am a medical director at a small company called Vivoli, which we have created a, um, a really innovative digital app to help with integrative medicine, exploring personalised data and helping people kind of use lifestyle medicine for their their advantage, whether they have a disease already or whether it's for optimal health and longevity. And then I work and practice one day a week. With the title, not that titles matter, <laughs> but I'm curious, GP, holistic GP? Yeah, so I'm just... I'm actually just focusing on anxiety, stress, burnout and menopause at the moment. So okay. There's no just in front of those words. No, I know. That's right. <laughs> but I guess the Just GP um, title, uh, yeah, I'm not working so much as a GP but just using my... Um, Specialised, a yeah. specialist. Yeah, special interest GP. Mm-hmm. Mm. Mm. With the... Uh, the book's fantastic and um, it, it's it's beautifully put together and I think there's such a great balance of the personal... And, and the scientific, and um, and it's really accessible. So I encourage anyone listening to get your hands on a copy. Where can people get a copy of The Wonder Within? So you can go to my website at uh, theholisticgp.com.au and it's available online through all of the normal online sales. Wherever you get your books. Correct. You can also access some exercises um, online outside of the book content. What are they? On the website, we've actually put together the meditations in the book. And so that you can have a, if you don't have to go and buy the book, but if you want to have a listen to some of the meditations, um, they're all available online. And we have a little mini guide just talking about all things whole, which is also available on the website. Just before we wrap up today, Michelle, you mentioned, and we haven't deep dived today about anxiety, which is a big area Mm. for you personally and professionally. What are your thoughts on medication for anxiety? What I say in the book is that, I mean, I think we are anti-everything in this current medical client. We're anti-biotics, we're anti-inflammatory, we're anti-depressants, we're anti-anxiety. And I think medications can be really helpful for some people and certainly they're a lifeline for some, for sure. But I think anxiety or depression or, or burnout is an invitation for us to look within at the other resources that we have both physically mentally emotionally and 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 wholly really in many ways call it spiritually if you if you'd like because I think given the right resources I mean this is what the research says too like we can give antidepressants for something like anxiety which is you know often given and without doing things like cognitive behavioral therapy or supportive counseling even things like mindfulness-based cognitive behavioral therapy once you come off those medications it's likely to return and so I think it's really important that when we are faced with a um, an illness you know inverted commas illness or disease it's really important that we look at the underlying causes so that we're not at risk of it recurring again it's the same you know I mean sure if you sprain your ankle you know it's it's likely to heal and and not return unless you sprain it again but things that are ongoing require us to do things differently and that's the invitation that illness creates in the body and that's the exciting element I mean nobody gets really excited about anxiety because it's so uncomfortable right Um, but it can be a golden opportunity to reclaim and retrain our whole systems for even better 
well-being than mm. what we had mm. previously. When you first set out on your quest away from Western medicine, I remember you saying, um, and certainly when we chatted last time, that you were very disillusioned with the medicalisation and clinical the, the clinic, clinical sort of approach mm. to um, disease. Um, and that since then, you know, you've, you've re-examined that and integrated Eastern uh, training and now all this work around the heart-led playbook. Um, in your book, you've got a beautiful quote from Rumi, who's, who's a legend, mm. uh, that says, your heart knows the way, run in that direction. Mm. Do you feel like you're running in the right direction? <laughs> I've got chills. Yes. And you know what I love about that quote is he actually says run in mm. that direction, you know, yeah. like it's with it's with gusto. excitement mm. and gusto and full embrace of life. And yes, thank you for asking. I do. I'm really I'm really glad, you know, that I actually had the skills in which to be able to listen with a different ear and a different tone to the subtleties that live within all of us. And it's a golden opportunity sometimes when we have discomfort and, mm. and dare I say, all of, you know, when we get crisis in our lives, you know, if we have the opportunity to, to walk it um, with new eyes, then, yeah, anything's possible. Yeah, I've got chills too, just at the possibilities um do you want me to turn the heating up, guys? <laughs> no, the possibilities of what you're describing, I think there'll be so many people who listen and that's why I was curious about exploring this as not just a career path mm. um, opening of your heart and your wholeness because for others it will be in different parts of yeah, their absolutely. life. absolutely. But with a similar experience mm. of going with the intellectual to, and overriding the other at, at a cost to the well-being of, yeah. of of all of us, the individual and the collective. Mm. We we asked you last time a couple of years back our typical ending question, and I can recall your answer, but we would like to ask again because you've shown up differently today because two years has transpired. So, Michelle, who do you think is doing human well? <laughs> Good question. Mm. I know. I remember the answer that I gave last time. I'm going to say something a little controversial, but I think, you know, I think that there is actually a huge movement towards this kind of style of, of wholeness. And I've re-kind of thought in many ways the opportunities that we have to turn up in our communities. And I think, you know, we'll often have this divide between genders and, you know, women doing this and men doing this. And I just think collectively there's a lot of people really asking the right questions these days. But unfortunately I don't know whether they're getting the answers as well from the systems that we've got at play. And I think that there will be likely to be a dismantling of some big <laughs> systems particularly the ones you know I know my particular system of medicine needs a real revamp um, and I'd love for that to see happen and as much as healthcare practitioners are just doing everything they can I think that the system doesn't allow them to deliver in the fullness of themselves and I think that the fullness of all of us needs to come to play we need to trust ourselves and we need to trust each other and I think the ones that are really trying to get that fullness that's who I'm I think is mm. turning up mm. and doing human well 
Thank you for coming in again to, to share with us. It's it's um, spurred us on, I think, Mads, to have a where are they now follow up with some of our favourite past guests. <laughs> and you. how can we encapsulate someone's story in a 40 or 50 minute chat? We could have everyone back multiple times. <laughs> yeah. And you've shared such wisdom with a gentleness, but a strength and a knowing a whole knowing <laughs> that I think is an invitation for others to do the same. So thank you. Thank you, guys. Thanks for inviting me back. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Human Cogs. We hope that this conversation has led you to think a little bit differently about yourself and those around you. And thank you for all the amazing feedback that we get about these conversations. If you do like Human Cogs and what we're doing, we would love you to hit subscribe and please leave us a star rating. What that means is we can keep bringing you more stories from Extraordinary Ordinaries to help us all do human well. well.